This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dumoulin. And I'm Yannick Mignon. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Apple versus Epic and what it means for the future of iOS user experience. Ooh, but before we start, we have some follow-up. And I will start this week again with Apple Pay slash mobile payments uh, follow-up, as we always like to do. Uh, this one is kind of the typical thing. It's been a while since we've done it, but uh, since it went through my Twitter timeline uh, in the past two weeks, I was like, let's welcome new members to the Apple Pay club so uh several partners in europe and also in canada uh got supported for apple pay so a couple of banks so i'm american express in netherlands uh, ing in italy uh Saturday in portugal uh, ubs in switzerland and last but not least the uh canadian carrier rogers credit card brand is also added added apple pay support they have a to- credit card yeah 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 huh everybody has a credit card these days I thought you knew that. Actually, I, I don't know. Well, yes, you do, because I sent you the link. But uh, Japan is running out of credit card numbers. <laughs> yes. I've been, like, wowing people's minds all week, telling them, that, hey, did you know Japan is running out of credit card numbers? Yeah. Yeah. That When you sent me that, the funny part, too, is I was surprised that with our lengthy history in North America of using credit card, that that, quote unquote, never happened? Or we yeah. all forgot about it? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what happened there. It seems really weird for a country like Japan, who doesn't really give a shit about credit cards usually, uh, to suddenly be out of numbers. But yeah, I'm not fully versed on that. I do also have some uh, Apple PayPal on myself. Okay, just one thing again uh, to conclude this first part of mobile payment follow-up. Oh, s- sorry. <laughs> uh, I would like to welcome you all if you are... are uh, any of these uh, using any of these banks or also we have a Canadian a Rogers branded Canadian credit card you can finally use it on Apple Pay uh, especially for I guess for us Canadians and even some of those countries that they have other banks supporting Apple Pay for a long while that maybe you've been waiting for so long and now finally you don't have a reason to switch so welcome to the Apple Pay club Apple Pay kids uh, and then we can move on to your follow up New York MTA is pissed at Apple. (laughs) Basically, this is the combination of two problems. Uh, So the MTA, which is the New York subway authority, uh, is launching something called Omni uh, throughout. Well, they started last year, basically. Uh, And part of that is this new card similar to like Suica or whatever that will allow people to tap in uh, with their Apple Watch and all of that stuff. The rollout started uh, last May. Uh, they now support EMV Express Transit, which means uh, if you have a credit card in your Apple Pay, you can just tap your watch on the on the gate when you're walking into the subway and everything will be handled with a credit card transaction. However, uh, not all types of transit fare options are supported by EMV Express Transit, so many of the people in New York still have to rely on their good old Metro cards. Now, the problem about this is that if your phone or Apple Watch gets too close to the reader, it still registers an EMV tap. So people were winding up with duplicate transactions when they weren't intending to do so. Uh, and this caused a whole panic. So naturally, what the MTA says is, everybody turn off express transit, uh, which is fucking stupid. Uh, but they did it anyway. So now everybody needs to use Face ID, but people are taking their masks off to use Face ID because that's how you unlock your phone. And I guess people are too lazy to do the, the pin code. 
So now the MTA is mad that people are taking off their masks on the subway. So they're telling Apple, please fix Face ID. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, every Asian country in the world is telling MTA, like, good luck with that, buddy. We've been dealing with this since the start of Face ID. Uh, And there's no real progress being made there. Uh, So I don't know. I just found this story incredibly hilarious. And I wanted to share it on the show. Uh, because again, it shows kind of this thing. But uh, once the OmniCard is actually properly supported in Apple Pay, and I believe the rollout of this technology got pushed either to late this year or 2021 because they're not going to make it in time, uh, that should resolve the remaining cases of like having to use MetroCard. But for now, the card is not out. Uh, The other piece of follow-up I have is with regards to the Your Name episode, uh, because I Ooh. discovered a really interesting YouTube channel that I want to share with people that sort of touches on something that I mentioned uh, during that episode. And that is, uh, I mentioned uh, that Shinkai is often called like the next Ghibli or whatever, and that it's like a good entry point for people who want to experience anime beyond what they've seen of Studio Ghibli movies. Well, there is a wonderful YouTube channel called Beyond Ghibli that I binge-watched all of the videos for, uh, which is amazing. And it is like literally video essays and recommendations of various anime you should be watching if you're interested in learning more about anime after having seen Ghibli movies. And there are a few video game videos as well. There's one that touches on similarities between Zelda Breath of the Wild and uh, Ghibli movies and all that stuff aesthetically. Uh, So it was really fascinating. And if you have a spare evening and you want to watch all the videos, I recommend them highly and you should definitely drop a subscription. Sounds nice. Yeah, I mean, I thought of you when I saw that because I was like, this is perfect for you. <laughs> I was about to say that. That's literally seems to be in my ballpark. So I guess I might have a new subscription on my YouTube channel. By the way, it's kind of related to some of the discussion we had offline, but my YouTube queue is quite clean compared to my podcast queue these days. So. <laughs> well, there you go. All right, now we're ready to uh, dig into the meat of this episode, and I think this is going to be a meaty one, um, mm-hmm. depending on mm-hmm. how much you has to yell at me about. Um, I'm eager to see how much I have to do that. Okay. Uh, so originally I was planning to have like a very general episode about Apple antitrust troubles, uh, but so much is happening that I sort of had to throw that plan out the window. Uh, right now, the Apple versus Epic case is kind of the biggest one of these cases. There are a lot of fascinating things to talk about with uh, the hay problem from like, t- what, three months ago by now? Uh, uh-huh. Uh, the xCloud case, and more recently, the WordPress case, which lasted literally 24 hours. Um, the problem with the Apple versus Epic case is that it also is moving incredibly fast. Dithering is a podcast that has three episodes a week, and even it can't keep up with it. Uh, and like we're recording this the night before Epic's deadline to theoretically update Fortnite, although they've said they won't. Uh, so by the time you hear this, things may have already changed. Um So instead of doing all of this timely shit, I want to take a long view ahead and talk about the various suggestions people have about how Apple can resolve this case and how it might uh, impact the iOS user experience going forward. And you know what? Uh, I know you kind of told me that, yeah, you had to rewrite some of your kind of uh, show outline for this week. And you kind of never mentioned where it was going. And then when you just said that, like, maybe 10 minutes ago, before we started recording, that you wanted to go there. And I felt that uh, you're correct that, yes, this episode might not be more like kind of a, it will be easier for us to 
revisited, let's say in six months, in a year, in two years to see where all of that evolved. And I think that's going to be quite interesting because of that. Yeah, since we are not full-time podcasters, I can't like devote six hours a day to actually like updating the outline. And <laughs> since we do episodes every two weeks, like there is a high risk that things are going to be outdated. So we're not even going to go there. We're just going to skip over it. Uh, but I will, however, give a summary timeline of the events just in case you are new to this or in case you're re-listening to this episode years from now and want to r- remind yourself of what happened. Um, so between June 30th and July 17th, uh, Tim Sweeney, who is the CEO of Epic, emailed Phil Schiller asking basically for two things. The ability to use their own payment processing in Fortnite, uh, which if for some reason you're listening to this like 200 years in the future is the biggest game right now, uh, aside from Fall Guys. Uh, and the other thing they asked for is they wanted to be able to make their own game store for iOS devices. Uh, unsurprisingly for Apple, these discussions ended with no. <laughs> I'm just thinking like let's imagine three five years a lot of shit happens we'll discuss that can you imagine like coming back to this moment and just like imagine Apple answering like literally no and that's the only word in the email which is kind of what we saw right like, that's how Steve fun. Jobs would have answered it like I've that's seen true. his emails um, so yeah th- that was like the, the initial event like some people speculated that there was intense negotiations all that shit like from the emails we saw no it's just like literally they were like please give us this please tell us yes or no within two weeks and apple was just like i mean no and it ended there yeah literally in the next two weeks a minute later after receiving this email no done and i mean like what did you expect uh so august 13th the plan finally happens. Uh, Fortnite is updated via a server-side flag to basically give players the option of either paying full price for purchasing uh, V-Bucks via the App Store's in-app purchase infrastructure, or you can get 20% off by using Epic Direct Payment, which is intentionally breaking the rules of the App Store to let you insert uh, your credit card number into a web form. Um Epic notified Apple of this change at 2 a.m. on August 13th, and the update went live a couple hours later on the Epic website. In the afternoon of that day, Apple pulled Fortnite from being listed on the App Store, and within minutes, Epic had filed a lawsuit against Apple and published all of the legal documents online. Oh, I didn't know that they notified Apple that they were like just enabling this remote flag. Yeah, they did, but it was at 2 a.m., so like they basically found out when they woke up i guess <laughs> and yeah so at 4 p.m eastern epic debuted a short film in the game's party royale mode uh, if you don't know party royale is a thing they added a couple months ago which is basically like instead of actually playing the game Fortnite, you just go on the Fortnite island or whatever and hang out there and do a bunch of different non-violent activities uh there have been concerts and movie screenings in Fortnite and this party royale mode and basically they put up this whole entire new theater just for this 1980 Fortnite movie which is a parody of the 1984 uh, commercial that positions apple as big brother and ends with a cry to militarize their player base into a hashtag free Fortnite social media campaign which like fuck you fuck you (laughs) no fuck you Uh, can i have just one small small tangent about the uh, party mode it reminds me like 
kind of unrelated to the topic, but uh, it kind of reminds me a long, long time ago on the, I think it's on the PS3 that Sony had something similar. PlayStation Home. Yeah, that was PlayStation Home. I wasn't sure if it was home or it was View, but I don't know why I had you in mind uh, because that's the TV streaming service. Uh, but yeah, this kind of reminds me of that. And it's crazy that like in 2020, something that Sony did literally 10 years ago is now like the huge, the biggest gaming sensation of the year. Well, a Second Life was sort of the precursor to PlayStation Home, and that's still going on. Like, oh, really? Oh. Yeah, it's still huge. And like VR Chat is sort of another recent take about that, but in, in virtual reality, and like there are a bunch of these virtual world things. But I think like Fortnite Party Royale is kind of the big one for kids, at least. Like a lot of the other ones, like Second Life is an entire sex industry and the game that does like their brothels and stuff you can watch videos about it on youtube i don't want to go too much into it yeah (laughs) but yeah like this is the only one that's basically kid friendly okay good point vr chat is like reddit in real life which is terrifying (laughs) it's just racist memes everywhere it's terrifying oh no 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 okay sorry for the small tangent but that kind of because we were talking about it it reminded me of it all right. Uh, next day, August 14th, Apple notifies Epic that if they don't update Fortnite within two weeks, their developer accounts, and we will elaborate on this in a bit, will be terminated. August 17th, Epic is not happy about the risk that one of their developer accounts, which is tied to Unreal Engine, might actually get shut down. Uh, so they seek a restraining order against Apple terminating their account. Uh, on August 21st, Apple files their own documents for the hearing, which, among other things, revealed the contents of the emails we already mentioned uh, between Twim, Tim, Twim, yeah, Tim Sweeney, <laughs> Twim for his friends, and Phil Schiller uh, earlier in the summer. Uh, August 23rd, Microsoft filed a declaration of support for Epic, which is basically saying uh, if Unreal Engine and the whole ecosystem around Unreal Engine is not allowed to update on Mac anymore, this would cause substantial damage to uh, us as well because we are a game console maker and we are launching a console this fall that has games that are written in Unreal Engine and we would like them to be able to ship, especially since Halo Infinite got delayed until next year. Uh, So they have no games for the Xbox launch. Oops. Uh, Really? Okay, that's another story. That's that's another story, but yeah, no, Epic, uh, not Epic, Xbox Series X is not going to go well. (laughs) Oh, wow. So August 24th, which is the next day, there is a preliminary hearing that takes place on Zoom. I have found a lot of the coverage of this hearing to be incredibly hard to read. Uh, But basically what happened is the judge decided that like the way Epic's accounts are structured is such that Fortnite and... Well, I think Fortnite is currently the only Epic game that is on the App Store, but in theory, other Epic games are in a separate account from the Epic uh, the Epic developer account that manages Unreal Engine. And so Apple was basically saying, well, these are both technically the same entity, and the, you're not supposed to have more than one account per entity, so we're in the right to disable both of them. And then the judge was just like, well, this entire battle is only about Fortnite, so we think it's fair if you only shut down the Fortnite one and don't touch the Unreal Engine one. Um, Another thing that's actually kind of interesting is there has been some debate as to whether or not uh, Apple was in the right to actually tell uh, Epic to fuck off and update Fortnite within two weeks or their account will be terminated, because 
if literally any other developer in the world had done that, their account would have been terminated basically instantly. And it's kind of like, it's still kind of special treatment, but people don't seem to be mad that they're getting special treatment. Instead, they seem to be mad that Apple is even threatening to take down Unreal Engine. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, no, but don't forget, Tim said, Tim Cook, he said in front of the Congress that, you know, we treat all developers the same. <sighs> yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> anyway, August 26th, yesterday, uh, Epic announced that they don't have the intention of updating Fortnite on iOS to comply with uh, the requests. Uh, and this is the part that I had not understood properly, and this is the thing that blows my mind because I'm also familiar with other seasonal games. So basically, today was the launch date for Chapter 2 Season 4, which is a seasonal update for Fortnite that put, updates the maps and puts a bunch of new microtransactions in the game and stuff like that. Uh, in traditional seasonal games, everyone has to be on the latest version all the time. My understanding about how this uh, the lack of the season four update is going to work is that iOS and Mac Fortnite players are just locked on chapter two, season three indefinitely, and they will continue to be able to play together, except it's just iOS and Mac people who can play together. Whereas the rest of the cross play pool will be on season four. This is not huh. usually how it works. Usually it's just like, if you are not on the latest version, you simply cannot play the game. Uh, and I didn't even know this was possible, and this was news to me. I found out about this earlier today. Uh, so, yeah. So, I guess iOS and Mac Fortnite users will continue to be able to play the current content, well, the current, current as of yesterday content of Chapter 2 Season 3 until this is resolved, which is, like, who knows when. I wonder if it's something they've added or, like, kind of patched on the server because of all this litigation and that and it was not something that they always supported, if you see what I mean. I don't know enough about how it works to do all that stuff, but it is surprising to me that this would be possible. Especially since a lot of Unreal Engine stuff, because Fortnite, of course, is developed on Unreal Engine, uh, a lot of their stuff is more or less built to be the same on all platforms. So it is actually kind of shocking to me that this is even a thing that they can do. Uh, but yeah, like the... I don't have any more info on the topic, so th that'll have to do for now. So now that I've pretty much explained the entire timeline, it's time for me to give my simplified take on everything that has happened and sort of summarize my take on the last month of discourse, more or less. Uh, so I think everyone at this point sort of agrees to some degree that Apple has too much power and that it should either take action by itself or be regulated by the government. However, everyone right now has wildly differing opinions on how hard Apple should be hit. And for a lot of the takes I have seen, end user experience either is not a consideration or they haven't really thought out things that clearly. Uh, and one of these things is there's this debate about whether iOS devices are computers or consoles. Thanks, John Gruber, for starting that shit up. Uh, <laughs> And I kind of disagree with the use of the word consoles. And I also disagree that it's a binary choice between computers and consoles. I believe iOS devices are general purpose computers, but they are a subset of the category that I would call computing appliances. And this is more or less analogous to what Gruber tries to say with consoles, but because so much of the baggage around the word consoles is related to game consoles. I feel like people misinterpret what he means. And also the fact that a lot of the, his discussion about this is on Dithering, which is a paywall podcast, but <laughs> nevertheless. Uh, 
So ultimately, the relationship that we have with iOS devices are very similar to the ones that we have with consoles. Because people buy consoles because they don't want to have to deal with the complexity of a full-fledged PC just to be able to enjoy gaming. And if you apply that to iOS devices, people buy iOS devices because they don't want to have to deal with the complexity of a full-fledged PC just to enjoy general-purpose computing. In both of those cases, we put trust in the platform holder to actually make choices on our behalf to simplify and streamline the user experience. So my stance in all of this is that computing appliances make computing friendly and approachable to a much wider range of people than traditional computers. This approach to computing is valuable and should continue to exist, but ultimately it can't become the only kind of computer anyone makes, otherwise everything becomes locked down. The people who benefit most from the computing appliance approach are the least likely to actually speak about it because they aren't tech literate, so they don't even really know what's going on. They just know that they have a good time being productive on Apple devices in a way that they're not on other computing devices. My dissatisfaction with Apple has nothing to do with the computing model that they're pursuing, but rather that the choices that they've been making recently are also hurting the platform in the process. And they're like, we need to keep them accountable for the bad choices they're making, but I don't think the actual model itself is flawed. Right. And I I do think while I kind of agree with what you just said, um, I do good that right now that's kind of where the problem lies is there's limited to non ways to make them accountable right now. And that's where they kind of like left loose and I'm sure we'll discuss it more. But yeah, that's kind of where I lies compared to your statement is even if we can try to kind of like make sure they do the right thing, whatever the right thing is, uh if they decide to don't do the right thing it's kind of hard to tell them that sucks do something else yes it's definitely true um and i wish that apple was more attentive to well this is dangerous but like there is a rich ecosystem of bloggers around the apple sphere who know their shit uh and you can see a lot of them just by reading Michael Sai's blog every day and looking at all the links. Like, there are a lot of smart people who have a range of different opinions, uh, some of which I will be contradicting in this, <laughs> in this episode. Uh, but it doesn't even seem like they're paying attention to any of the discourse and they're continuing on this sort of stubborn approach to just saying, well, we're entitled to this 30% cut or whatever. Or we're, we're not changing our ways. And I sort of want to look into like what the friction is to all of these avenues for resolution throughout the episode and see, like, can they do some of these without actually compromising their vision for what iOS should be? The three avenues for resolution that we're going to be looking at throughout this episode are going to be reducing the 30% cut, allowing alternative payment methods in the app store, and allowing sideloading and or alternative app stores. So let's start with the 30% cut. So when the App Store was introduced, Steve Jobs said that 30% cut was to cover the costs of running the App Store. Maybe this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I actually believe Steve's words here. And I don't think it was necessarily unreasonable to ask for it at the time. Uh, so part of this is because micropayment infrastructure was quite scarce in 2008. Uh, much of my thoughts around this are largely based on being privy to internal discussions around the launch of the Cydia store in 2009. Uh, I was part of Sorix Inner Circle, and there are lots of challenges in trying to launch a App Store clone of sorts. Uh, and 
One of them was that it was incredibly hard to find payment processing partners whose fees would scale reasonably to purchases under $5. Many of the online stores that you saw at the time were offering microtransactions uh, under that amount, but the way they would work around it is they would force you to fill a virtual wallet with cash to buy things on these these stores. So like one good analog would be like the Xbox Live uh, marketplace. They had DLC and they had uh, Xbox Live Arcade games and all of that stuff for relatively cheap prices, but you couldn't actually check out for a transaction of that amount. You had to basically load like 1500 xbox points or whatever to actually be able to do your stuff same deal on the wii uh playstation didn't obscure it with a points currency but you effectively had to do the same thing steam was the same way for a long time so very few payment processing partners actually wanted to do this it was very rare to see uh in the tech industry basically the only people who did it was the itunes music store and they basically did it by eating the costs as far as i know because they wanted to gain market dominance. Even then, though, uh, sorry for the interruption, but even then, sometimes Apple will kind of bundle a couple of purchases you made, uh, ignoring its price. So it could be like a $15 movie, just uh, like an app update, into the same kind of bill. Yeah. And then they would just charge you the full price. For sure, right now, with all the subscription, like there's lots of small charges but i've seen that uh when i buy a couple of apps in a couple of days in the end just end up into one bill one charge yep definitely uh so apple sort of like because they pool purchases together they can sort of get around this without having to actually like i mean if you actually do buy a one dollar thing every three months like you're going to get charged for one dollar and they're going to eat some of that cost um and sort of going hand in hand with this like non-existent micropayment infrastructure state in 2008 is also the uh, the unknown scale of success of the App Store at the time. It wasn't really clear at the time how many developers would get on board. How is app review going to scale to developer demand? How expensive will apps choose to be? What proportion of the developer base will be indies versus large companies? How successful will indies be versus large companies? Uh, you have to remember that until the day the App Store launched, I, iPhones weren't subsidized on contract. So the impact of how many iPhones they were going to sell and what that impact was going to have on the App Store was unclear. And also remember that at the time, in-app purchases and subscriptions were not a thing. Uh, so all of this uncertainty makes it that, like, yeah, you're probably going to charge 30% just to make sure you cover your costs for a while. I don't think that uh, services revenue was a focus at all for Apple at the time that the App Store was founded. And if it had stayed that way, uh, I think that the App Store's cut would have evolved over time, similarly to how iPod pricing structure evolved over time to remain appealing. Uh, iPod pricing structure basically evolved to try and capture as much of the market as possible. And I think... I really dislike using this phrase, but I will do it because I actually do feel this way. I think if Steve Jobs was still around, he would understand the value of keeping the App Store appealing to developers more than Tim Cook's Apple would. Hmm, that's a strong statement. I, I don't, I don't feel it is strong because you say if Steve Jobs was around, because you really say so. But 
but we have multiple, multiple examples where Steve Jobs kind of like giving the middle finger to developers, so... I think this is one of the things like iTunes on Windows where he could be convinced of the value. I don't think he necessarily had that opinion, but I think he could be convinced easily. Okay. But again, like this is my Steve Jobs fan fiction, so... Right, right. <laughs> I, I'll say that I strongly disagree with that statement right now. But... Fair enough. Fair. I buy it. Uh, this is more opinion than fact anyway. Right, uh, right. So to me, the 30% cut is actually the thing that is the easiest to fix about the App Store. And I don't think that's really a controversial statement. Uh, and ultimately, I don't think it actually impacts user experience that much. I think it's much more of a developer relations fix than anything else. That said, I don't think that most of the businesses that are currently unsustainable with a 30% cut would suddenly become sustainable unless the cut was drastically lowered. Um, so if we look at like other stores that offer rates below 30%, Epic Game Store, uh, which is unfortunately also the, one of the topics of this episode, uh, offers a 12% cut on their thing. Uh, itch.io, which is the indie marketplace that my Game Jam games are on, although we don't charge for them, uh, their default rate is 5%, but it is adjustable by the developer. You can choose 0%, you can choose 90% if you want. It is entirely mm. in your control. Um, I believe they've published numbers of like what developers generally select as the cut, and I don't remember where it is, but I will try to Find that for the show notes if I can, because that would be real interesting to see. Uh, and of course, like the best case scenario, if the cut goes down, is users see lower prices in apps that compensate their pricing for the 30% cut. Uh, I subscribe to YouTube Premium via the in-app purchase, and I get charged 30% more because I'm an idiot and I am lazy and I don't want to go to the Google website to go subscribe to it there. Uh it sure would be nice if the cut could go down so that I would get paid. I would have to pay less every month. But in the meantime, I guess I'll just have to stop being lazy at some point. Yeah. And knowing that YouTube premium is quite expensive. Uh, like I, I didn't bite the bullet and I just went on pay.google.com and then configure my Apple, uh, Google Pay account and all that fun stuff just for that. The trick is I didn't realize until after I had already subscribed and then I was like, ah. No, no, I remember people complaining that it was 30% 30 more uh, on the App Store. So I'm like, okay, not doing that. All right. So the next point I want to talk about is allowing alternative payment methods in the App Store. And... This can introduce friction and damage consumer trust if it's done in the wrong way. So the friction that's added is, of course, as a user, I don't want to constantly have to fill out my billing information into random apps. And then the trust is if I use a third-party payment processor in an app and it turns out to be stealing credit card numbers or the amount of money being billed is not what's shown to me in the UI or whatever, I'm far less likely to trust non-App Store payments again. Or if I'm less informed and can't tell the difference between non-App Store payments and App Store payments, maybe I just stop buying apps or stuff in apps. Uh, luckily, a solution kind of exists for this and it's called Apple Pay. Once Apple Pay is set up, for uh, purchases on your device. Paying for things is more or less as transparent as buying things off the App Store. And Apple has existing relationships with uh, third-party payment service providers around the world. So presumably those are considered trustworthy. Um, 
from a user point of view, I think that making developers go through Apple Pay if they choose to circumvent App Store payments would nullify basically all of the downsides I underlined. And one of the bonus perks that would come out of this is that maybe reader apps, so-called reader apps, could finally charge for content and subscriptions in their apps instead of requiring you to do so via the web, but not being allowed to tell you that you can do it over the web. Like that is a very sucky uh, consequence of the current uh, reality of the app store. What about if we look at it from Apple's point of view? Well, the thing is, like, if you make circumventing the app store too easy or transparent, uh, developers will see very little reason to stick with Apple's own IAP platform unless they greatly improve the value proposition of sticking with the App Store. Uh, if, the, if, if the experience is just as seamless, like, why would you voluntarily take, or like, give up 30% of your... This is presuming they don't lower the cut, but why would you give away 30% of your revenue if the user experience is comparable via Apple Pay? The other downside I can see for Apple in this case is additional support burden. And the reason for this is like, if you buy something via App Store IAPs, you can contact Apple. And I'm not saying they will take action on whatever you ask them to do, uh, like refunds or whatever, but you have a centralized location you can contact. If you do Apple Pay IAPs, it's not clear anymore who you have to contact. Is it your credit card? Well, like credit card's always going to be on your side. Like, let's be honest. But like, uh, are you contacting Apple about it? Are you contacting the app developer about it? Are you contacting the payment provider about it? It's not super clear. Yeah, and but the the main issue I have with that is right now with Apple's app purchase system, even if you try to do something regarding the uh, the customer relationship that you don't have with your own customers, like even Apple is screwing you over for this. Like they say, like your customer will contact Apple because you're correct that. They have a relationship with Apple, even if it's your for your app. And then Apple will be like, contact the developer. And the developer will be stuck like, but you own the relationship. Like, why are you sending customer my way when I can't literally do nothing? And Apple is the place where is the person or the entity that should be doing something. And they just don't. Yeah, I I definitely see like a privacy argument for like, keep everything internal to Apple and don't expose that information to developers. At the same time, like, like if you were a developer and you were to adopt a third-party pay- payment uh, processor, like you could file your own refunds, which is like a significant advantage that you wouldn't have if you stuck with the Apple thing. So, like, the entire Apple value proposition falls apart if you allow uh, third-party payments, and if the experience is as seamless as Apple Pay, like maybe there's just no more App Store IAP because there's no reason for it to exist or something to that extent. Or like, unless you're like, literally like, this is my first iPhone app. I have no idea how to do any of this shit. I'll just integrate with Apple stuff because it's the easiest. Although having tried to write an app purchase code, I don't agree with that statement at all. But yeah, nobody says that ever. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to tell how this ends well for Apple, but I, at the same time, I don't really care. <laughs> uh, for, from the developer's point of view, uh, this might not be good enough for the larger players. Uh, so like, if we they do what I'm proposing and they, we say, okay, all the payment processors that are allowed with Apple Pay are allowed to do this, uh, larger players may already have their own payment processing infrastructure and they might not want to participate in Apple Pay ecosystem. Good example, this is Amazon. Uh, Amazon has Amazon payments. Why the fuck would they want to do Apple Pay? Uh, so 
would they get on board with that or not? Unclear. Uh, since your app is technically still being distributed through the Apple App Store, this doesn't remedy any of the issues like Microsoft's xCloud app. Like the disagreement about xCloud is not about the 30% cut for the payment. It's about platform control. And that is a whole completely different issue that this doesn't get resolved by. And then if we're extrapolating and talking about like the regulators from the government that is going to regulate Apple, is this good enough? Because you're giving developers a choice between two Apple-branded options, which doesn't seem like it resolves the issue, and Apple is still getting a cut of all in-app purchases made on their platform. It's just dramatically smaller if you go by Apple Pay. But is that still good enough? I don't know. I don't know enough about like how these people work and what they think about, but I can see them making the case that it's not good enough, and then like you sort of are forced into a free-for-all approach, and I really dislike that. Wait, but are you saying that when you use Apple Pay through, let's say, Stripe? Yeah. Or, I don't know, but Stripe is one of the popular ones, so let's name them. Uh, that Apple gets a cut of their f- credit card fees? Any Apple Pay payment, yeah. I forgot about that. It's tiny, but it's still a thing, and you make it up in volume. Right, but it is still part of like uh, the... like. Uh, MasterCard network fees plus yep. the other network fees. Oh, okay. I forgot about that. Yeah. So, like, I mean, at that point, like, if it's, like, 1%, like, I, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't actually know what the cut is, but I, I know it's, like, very small. Uh, if they still get 1%, is that still too big a cut for regulators? I don't know. <laughs> right. Sometimes it's just, like, the principle of the matter that matters and not the actual cut itself. Uh, And one issue I see, and the reason I really don't want the free-for-all approach to become the approach that's adopted if they have to change on payment processing, is that I feel it disproportionately benefits large developers over smaller ones. And this is kind of one of the things where I've seen a lot of bad takes, or what I call bad takes, from game developers uh, over the last two weeks that have been saying, like, there's no excuse that Apple is not allowing basically any app to put a credit card field in their thing and allowing it to take arbitrary uh, payments. And the thing is, like, if you're a smaller developer, people are much less likely to trust your credit card field than they are to trust one that belongs to Epic. And basically, like, you either have to go through a payment processor that people recognize, like the App Store or uh, like if Epic Game Store makes an SDK that you can integrate into your thing to have in-app purchases go through EGS, like maybe that. But yeah, or again, I'll name them again: Stripe, um, yeah, like PayPal, like one of the big names. But like, if you try to roll your own thing, like people will be very suspicious and will not get on board. Uh, and I will have more on this like tendency of users to gravitate towards centralized players in a little bit. Don't worry, uh, but like it also applies to payment, not just to alternative app stores. Okay, next point: side loading and alternative app stores. Mm, the big point here. Yeah. So before we get into the details, I do want to acknowledge the irony uh, that someone who made their living selling software for jailbroken iPhones for six <laughs> years, saying that there shouldn't be side loading or alternative app stores, is kind of funny. Uh, yeah, I get it. Um, but there is a distinction that I want to make here, which is, aside from the two jailbreak me jailbreaks that have existed throughout iPhone jailbreak history, 
you can't really be tricked into accidentally jailbreaking your phone. There are hurdles involved, especially recently, like the ever since the Panga team, Panga, Pangu, Pangu, sorry, Panga is a Super Mario Maker streamer that I like and you got me confused. Uh, Pangu team jailbreaks are some of the worst fucking user experience I have ever had in a jailbreak process. I know because I had to install them on my device to continue supporting Iconoclasm. It was so fucking weird and shady. Like you had to like download an enterprise app that was doing something mm. while the app was running on your computer. And I was terrified. Uh, so like, yeah, like to start off, like you probably have to plug it into your USB port of your computer. And like most people are not going to do that to start off. So you've already eliminated a bunch of people doing that. Uh, and like all of these hurdles disincentivize big companies from legitimately relying on jailbreaks for software distribution outside the app store. I do want to thank Sorik. Uh, by the way, Sorik has an, well, an excellent take. It's not a take I agree with, but I appreciate his take anyway. Uh, he posted one on Twitter and he's been very active on Hacker News, uh, commenting on various threads about this. Uh, and one counterexample to this that he brought up, which I had forgotten about, but is absolutely true, is... During iOS 4 and iOS 5 days, Baidu had a Chinese input method in Cydia. And if you accessed Baidu on an iPhone, I shit you not, there was an ad for jailbreaking your iPhone on the front page. And they were trying to get you to install their Chinese uh, keyboard by jailbreaking your device. This is the only time a major company has ever said, please jailbreak your iPhone. But I had completely forgotten about this and... Yes, I remember it was wow. quite popular. I did not remember this. Well, you sort of had no reason to know about it because like none of us are really like paying attention to what goes on on the Chinese internet. No, for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised that that would pop up and be like, "Oh my god, look at Baidu asking for people to jailbreak and blah blah blah." Yeah, so that is like the only major example I can think of. Like, I don't think Epic is going to like decide next week to put a new video in their fake theater inside of the Fortnite game and tell people how to jailbreak their phones. Uh, although they could. I mean, at this point, I'll believe fucking anything. Uh, but <laughs> true. But at this, yeah, if you jailbreak, yes. But even then, it's no. If you jailbreak, you're okay. Because I was about to say. Maybe at some point they'll start to distribute hashtag enterprise certificate builds, but yeah. then they'll get shut down. But you're correct that, yes, if they do jailbreak, they can just have a quote-unquote pirated, pirated copy of their own software, which is not pirated because it's their own software. But yeah, use it would the jailbreak just basically to... be side-loading, except you would have to do so many steps to actually get it to work, which would right. be inconvenient. Did you have something you want to say? Yes, I was. I just wanted to add that that would be the funniest plot <laughs> twist in the end. It's like they ask you to jailbreak using the the Pangu one, and then they ask you to plug in the computer, get this weird Chinese software, and blah blah blah. It uh, would be, be so fucking weird. Because one point I'd like to know that you're correct that with especially like iOS nine, ten, eleven, twelve, like all the recent iOS jailbreaks. Uh, this is something that you need to cons consciously do. I would think that it's a type of thing that if you lose your phone, I would maybe just like if you find it after losing it, I would just maybe put it in the trash for reals. Mm -hmm. Because if somebody did that on your phone behind your back, you would never really know, right? It's true. So luckily, there are two present day examples we can look at to see why sideloading is a bad idea. And we can look at both the PC market and the Android market. 
So starting off with the PC market, I'm going to fucking scream if I hear another <laughs> PC user tell me that we should be modeling iOS software distribution over the PC model. That is insane. Uh, despite the huge market share advantage that Windows has over the Mac, there is no consumer software market on Windows at all, aside from the games industry, which is like, am I the only one who noticed? I don't know how you can miss that. Um, and this is, of course, tied directly to the fact that for the 90s and the 2000s, PC users were constantly being baited into downloading malware left and right. Uh, and before app stores were a thing, uh, the consumer trust of third-party software that was downloaded from the internet was completely eroded. And basically, you wound up with two kinds of people. Uh, if you exclude like the tech-savvy people, you had people who would download absolutely everything that they saw on the internet <laughs> and would wind up with 70,000 toolbars on their browser. And the you would have people. people who would download nothing and would use like PowerPoint and Outlook, and that's about it. Macs actually have a vibrant indie dev scene, and that sort of blossomed out of nowhere because their lackluster market share made it a very unappealing target at the time. Like, I'm going to be honest, Classic Mac was not a particularly secure operating system, but the fact that nobody had them was their biggest advantage we had security-wise. Uh, like, uh, I know how the memory model works in Classic Mac, and you could do pretty much whatever you wanted. Uh, so it... But we had developers like Panic and Barebones and all these great companies that still exist today that made absolutely great software, and that's why we stuck with the Mac. Uh, we were a very devoted little uh, community, and over time, that community became more and more passionate, and we blossomed into blogs and podcasts and all of that stuff. And we are able to foster an indie dev ecosystem at our scale and it works pretty good. But I think that also clouds the judgment of Mac users because they think that's how PC software is. It's not like that at all. And I don't think that if the iPhone had sideloading, it would be anything like the Mac because it doesn't have the scale of the Mac. It has the scale of the PC. Pretty much the only way you can reliably sell software on PCs, or at least that you could in that dark era, was to sell it in a brick and mortar store. And what that meant is you were either productivity software or games. It also meant that your business had to be a certain size to even be able to secure one of those distribution deals, which kind of exterminated the indie developers on PC. Uh, like the shareware scene was huge on Mac and like there's a reason people are more uh, passionate about shareware on Amiga than on PCs is because like all of the little platforms were where the good markets uh, came out. So the, as I mentioned, the only category that managed to salvage the wreck that was the consumer online software market was games, and only because of Steam. Steam launched in 2003, and it was in, originally intended to be an online store and update download platform for Valve games. In 2005, they gradually started opening up to third-party game developers. I think like by 2009, it became fully open, but like in 2005, you had to be like a big game studio to more or less like get entrance into the Steam market. So what Steam more or less proved is that people on PCs would not buy software online unless it came from A, a centralized storefront, and B, that storefront was tied to a trustworthy brand. This is why, like, you can't sell software as an independent developer on Windows, but people will put their credit card into iTunes because they know who Apple is. They will put their credit card into Steam because they know who Valve is. Like, that is how it goes. Um, but inevitably, like because Steam was the only one doing this, they eventually grew and grew and grew and had too much power over the games market. And it sort of mimics kind of what's going on with the App Store. So what happened? 
Every major games developer opened up their own storefront. Just the ones I can name off the top of my head. Xbox for Windows, Battle.net, Uplay, Origin, Epic Game Store, GOG, Riot Launcher, Bethesda Launcher. There are more, I just don't know them all off the top of my head, but there are a lot of them. Major game services companies opened up their own storefronts. Twitch and Discord both have their own game stores. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, itch.io launched, which is incredibly developer-friendly with a 5% cut that is adjustable by developer, and like they support Linux and stuff that other companies don't necessarily always want to do. Initially, everyone was on board for the perceived advantages of added competition. But then, when it actually became real and there were like 25 different stores, we entered a phase of launcher fatigue. It turns out that Steam was actually a really convenient centralized social platform that contained your entire ent- entity, uh, your entire identity as an online gamer. Uh, that's where your friends list was. That's where your entire games library, if it was digital, but you could even like add shortcuts to your physical games as well. Uh, all of that was centralized in the same place. You could see your achievements, uh, forums, all of that stuff, s- screenshot sharing. There was a whole social platform. And because they were the only game in town, like, your entire identity as a gamer was there. But then as more and more game developers were building their own silos and sometimes even retreating their games from Steam, your gaming identity became fragmented across many apps. And then all of a sudden you've got seven different apps running on your gaming PC and they're all bloated electron garbage that offer the same stack of storefront, game library, friends list, social network, chat client, and anti-cheat software. Like they're all doing all of this stuff and they all want to be running more or less all the time. And like, no wonder you need crazy specs in a gaming PC just to run this shitty app. (laughs) So what were the advantages of the added competition in the gaming space? Well, Twitch and Discord are interesting. Uh, Because they both have subscriptions for other things on their services, uh, that blossomed into monthly free game programs, kind of like PS Plus, uh, that reward you if you're a Twitch Prime or Discord Nitro subscriber. So you get two free games a month if you're on Twitch Prime, you get two free games a month if you're Discord Nitro. Like, free games. Who doesn't like free games? Uh, Epic Game Store has been giving away games for free every week since launch to try and incentivize people who don't like Fortnite to install it. Uh, I think it's worked pretty well. They gave away GTA 5 a couple of weeks ago, then that was a big success. More stores equals more sales equals even more chances to buy games at less than full price. Uh, and I have parentheses that say not that those were lacking. Uh, if you're a PC gamer, I honestly don't understand why anyone buys games at full price unless they literally want to play it on lunch day because there is no reason to do so ever again and i think that is also kind of a problem of the pc games market to be honest because maybe they shouldn't be charging full price that is so high um but that's a different topic for another episode true Um, and i'd like to note that this also applies to consoles because i literally did the exact same thing with the ps4 i think i only bought games full price literally because i wanted to play at launch and the latest example of that was the last of us part two i think it has been i have to look but i wouldn't be surprised it's been the first game in years where i paid full price they have a name for people like you on reddit it's patient gamers people who wait at least six months before actually buying the games and playing the games that were current 
Uh, I found that subreddit last week and I thought of you when I saw it. Yeah, and it's funny that they call it patient gamers because people say of me that they're usually not a real patient person in real life, but that's a different story. It's good to have patience in literally the least useful place you could have it. <laughs> it seems that's me. <laughs> Uh, and I think one of the bigger advantages for developers of all this added competition is that more game stores means more game stores are looking to sign deals with developers to lock down exclusives. And exclusive deals can be some of the more lucrative deals that indie developers can make. Uh, so I know someone who is making a game for Stadia that probably would not have sold very well, but they made so much money making it exclusive to Stadia that it doesn't really matter because it covered the cost of the game. And like sometimes those are the deals that developers need to actually like secure their ongoing uh, development. It's kind of sad that sometimes they have to resort to deals like that. Uh, PlayStation does a lot of deals like this as well on consoles. Um, but just having more game stores means that there are more of those opportunities going around to indie developers. And that means more indie developers are staying open instead of closing because three people bought their game. So aside from developers and people who are close to the development process, it seems that gamers themselves aren't actually that excited by increased competition because most of the advantages that they got out of it, putting aside free games and putting aside more opportunities to buy cheaper games, although they, like I said, they were not lacking opportunities to buy cheap games. Like it's just inconvenient to them. Now they have to open eight apps or remember which app the game is stored in. It sort of becomes like the network TV model where if you ha have cable or whatever, you have to remember what shows are on what channel. Whereas if you use like the TV app, it's just like, here are all my games. And there's an entire market of meta launchers that exist, which are apps that people make that parse the database files from all of these stupid launcher apps and distribute them into one UI that you can browse all your games in because that's what people want to do. And that's kind of what drives people to this launcher fatigue is people want to interact with one centralized location and Unfortunately, the consumers don't really give a shit about the developers or the situations behind the scenes. They just want their shit to work. I know multiple people who have abstained from buying games that they were extremely excited to play just because it was signed as an exclusive to the Epic Game Store. I'm not saying this as an endorsement of what they did because it's, I don't, but it's just a data point that there are a lot of gamers who are very passionate about whatever they choose to believe. And sometimes that is not necessarily the correct thing to believe but they will believe it and they will stick with their opinion and that means less people are buying the games that are exclusive to the epic game store uh, and in general the mainstream perception of the epic game store is quite negative uh even though like if you go behind the scenes epic game store is actually one of the most developer friendly game store fronts out there right now um so like what gamers think and what the consumers think of this added competition is not at all aligned with what developers want out of it. And like, this is the thing to remember if you see mostly criticism uh, about this Apple versus Epic thing from developers is their opinion does not necessarily match up at all with what consumers actually want or the majority of consumers actually want. Do you have any comments on the PC market before we go into the Android market? Uh, that's kind of hard for me, mainly because... I don't really live there, to be honest, right? Um, so it's while I understand that it's it's kind of a it, it was a mess, and now the only viable one is the gaming one. Plus, all the big companies are like just like we need to to steal Steam, Steam, if you see what I mean. Uh 
they build their own stores again it's not something i literally like clearly experience because like i'm don't have a pc i do but it's just dead somewhere next to me right now uh but again what i mean by that is to say i kind of wished i had a bit more experience with it so i can have an opinion about it because right now kind of like it is used as an example i'm like who cares right because i'm not there uh so Maybe one day I'll get a PC just to experience that. I always say that I want a PC to get more games and I've, I'll live the L of trying to buy games on PCs <laughs> and then be like, hey, remember our last episode? But I'm really good to talk about Android because I have a bit more experience with the Google Play Store with owning a couple of Android devices when I was uh, selling cell phones and trying to buy apps. Uh, I know it's a while back, so a lot of those, <laughs> those uh, features in the Play Store are not were not enabled, like uh, having different permit methods or even uh, no, sideloading was uh, there for a long time. Sideloading has always been there. Yeah, yeah. So that I I didn't recall maybe trying on Apple two that was kind of like strongly recommended by people. That like yes, if you sideload, this one is safe, but not the the other ones, just this one. So I think I did. Oh, yeah, and I recalled, speaking of sideloading, and I think that's going to be the best introduction to sideloading apps in Android is to use the contact mover box we had at the telephone store. We had to go in sideloading mode and then enable it so it has like specific access to your Android phone to sideload, not an app, but to try to fetch the contacts. I guess I wouldn't be surprised to just go in the file system, go read the contact database directly from the file system and just read it and put it in your iPhone or on another Android phone. So yeah, I recall doing that on a lot of people's phone. And then That's I- not sideloading, that's ADP, which is the debugger pro- protocol. But- it could be, it could be. I don't recall the exact wording of the setting I had to enable for this, uh, but it could be both, it could be one or the other, I don't recall, but yeah. You had to play an advanced setting, and it was a bit weird to do that on customer phone. But at least yeah. for me, I was going back and reverting those. I might have forgot a couple. Yeah, let's be honest. But overall, uh, that is uh, a funny story about size, quote unquote, sideloading apps on Android. Uh, before I get into the Android thing, I did forget to mention something about the PC market, which is uh, certain game developers have withdrawn from Steam and are now in the process of re-entering Steam. Hmm. Uh, EA is a perfect example of this. So EA pulled a lot of their games from Steam uh, to create the Origin Store a couple years ago. And this year, they basically announced uh, back in March, I think, that Battlefield games were returning to Steam, uh, which is pretty great. And uh, later this year, Apex Legends is going to be on Steam again. Uh, Well, not again. It was never on Steam. It was only available through Origin, but they are bringing it to Steam. Uh, And this is part of their push with crossplay because before Steam and origin had separate multiplayer pools uh so now they are basically going to merge those pools and there's also going to be uh ps4 xbox switch everyone mm, in the same uh cross play pool mm. um and i i guess i should bring it up like epic has also been involved in the surge of crossplay. uh basically what happened is they broke the rules on ps4 hmm i will rem- i wonder where i heard that before uh <laughs> They basically enabled crossplay even though they weren't allowed. And then for 24 hours, nine year old kids could play Fortnite across platforms. And then they had to pull it because Sony told them no. And then all of the nine year old's parents revolted. And it was on every late night show. And basically, through pressure, they had 
to support crossplay and now a bunch of other weird shit games like the indie game uh version of the Power Rangers fighting game has crossplay on all platforms and crossplay is just becoming the thing next year destiny is going to have crossplay uh it's going to be too late probably for me to get to play with my friends ever again but whatever crossplay is a thing largely due to epic so this is not the first time that they have used their market position to bring in air quotes the greater good this is where i whisper to the microphone and say Actually, it's because they developed a crossplay stack as part of Unreal Engine and they wanted to be able to sell it to developers. Okay, closing the parentheses. Oh, that's a. That's that a, is the thing that everyone forgets, but yes, that that is also the reason why. So, yeah, you code something that was not supposed to be coded and now you want to sell it, so you kind of force the end of the people that refuses you to sell it to make it available to be sold. Interesting. Okay, so Android Market, as I was saying. Um, so early on, there was almost no reason to not put stuff in the Android Marketplace, as it was called at the time, or the Google Play Store, because the original version of the Android Marketplace had no review process, and it was a big free-for-all, and oh, I wonder how that turned out. Not good. Uh, over time, Google basically has been trying to tighten the screws on developers. Uh, very early on, they introduced some automated app review, which basically like scans your app for known malware patterns, kind of like what happens when you try to notarize an application, I believe. They also more recently tried to restrict third-party payment usage for games. Uh, and I think the justification that was given for this is not entirely terrible, which is confused parents were contacting Google to ask for refunds on IAPs that their kids had done without permission, and they were done through third-party payments, so Google couldn't do shit. And pa parents had no idea who to turn to. Uh, so I understand the issue that they're trying to resolve by centralizing all payments into uh, Google Play's APIs, and I don't even think it's that bad of an idea. Um, but like Apple, they take a 30% cut that maybe is unjustified. Um, but none of that matters because sideloading exists and alternate app stores are a reality on Android. Uh, in fact, Epic has their own store. Epic has the Epic's Game Store app for Android, which currently only distributes Fortnite and another Epic game called Battle Breakers that I've literally never heard of, uh, but it exists. So you may have also heard that aside from Apple, Epic also sued Google. So why did they sue Google if this road exists on Android itself? Well, I know why. I know why. Stop. I know why. Oh, because go for it. their Epic Store is so epic when you sideload it <sighs> that it is so successful. It is epically successful when sideloaded. No. Ah, oh, I thought I knew it. So Epic originally tried to have Fortnite on Android without being on the Play Store. Uh, and they said they didn't basically have as much success as they felt entitled to because security <laughs> dialogues square, uh, scare users from sideloading. As they felt... I, I'll, I know That's you, my personal editorializing, by the way. Joe, I know, but the the editing, not the editing, but the, uh, like the quotes were not saying exactly those words, but you could interpret their tone to say... They felt entitled that, yes, we have sideloading, but now bad Google saying it's bad when we all know that not sideloading itself is bad, but there's risk and it's okay for Google to say, hey, there's risk. If you go in that side of our OS, good luck. Don't come crying after you do something wrong or somebody steals your money, which I think as a platformer is fair for them to do. The same oh, definitely. The I same would want them to do the same thing on iOS if we had that. Yes, you're correct. There's more or less the same way that Apple is currently doing on the Mac and it would non-notarize that too. 
And that's where my point is. Is I feel it's super weird, and I'll let you continue on why this is in Google, but I kind of find it weird that it feels to me, whereas they're forcing Apple to change their policies, that with Google, they're just kind of like sword losers on the Android <laughs> space, and then just trying to be a sword loser and then just go bitching to Google, which is like, hey, you have the out, go use the out, but it's not successful. Yeah. What's my problem in that? You have an out. Yeah. So Epic Game Store, uh, sorry, not Epic Game Store, Epic themselves uh, brought Fortnite to the Google Play Store because they wanted to become more accessible on the Android market, which again, like makes sense. Uh, but now because they did that, they are forced to use Google's own in-app purchase infrastructure. So if we sort of summarize the entire situation, even if sideloading is a thing, it's not enough for Epic. They both want the ability to have their own store that nobody wants to install and coexist in the Play Store while not paying the 30%, which I feel is unreasonable because like if a store is asking is if you want to be in the store, it's not unreasonable that you pay a certain fee to be in there. Especially especially if there's a way for you to not be in the store. And I think that's yeah. that's the main difference between Apple and Google these days. Is Apple is forcing you to be in the store. Whereas Google's like, if you want to build your own shit, go do it. So the alternate scenario is that maybe they don't actually want to be in the Play Store without paying for it, but they just want Google to reduce the friction inherent in sideloading, which is a problem because as you've said, sideloading does actually carry security risks and more so on Android than on other platforms that are more locked down like iOS. To go back to your gaming PC example, if I recall correctly, and again, I haven't used Windows in a while... Microsoft and Windows is slowly but surely to introducing like sign binaries and then not maybe being so aggressive when you don't use sign binaries, but they're exploring what they can do there, but they will take 10 years for it to be fully resolved. But like, <laughs> so I, ha- I have firsthand experience with this because I actually got the dialogue this week. So, oh, really? Yeah. So unsigned apps pop up a Windows Defender dialog that says like this application was blocked because it's unsigned and could be malware. So like it just shows you that and if you don't know how to get around it, like it just stops there. Uh, signed binaries don't have that. They pop up a little dialog that tells you who the certificate who signed it is. Uh, and then you just say approve and then there's that. But the difference is that anyone can sign with any certificate on, on Windows, whereas mm. on Apple platforms, you have to go through Apple. Okay, so you have to use Apple's root certificate through their system yeah. versus... Huh, interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I was very shocked when I saw that because it the dialogue, kind of like the Apple ones actually, uh, sort of say nothing about the signing process because probably not going to mean anything to the average user. But like as a developer, I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? Uh, and then I looked it up online and it was like, no, this is the dialogue that shows up when something isn't signed. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so yeah. There is an added risk if sideloading becomes common practice, and that is the more big companies rely on it for software distribution, the more desensitized people become to sideloading. And there's actually even been instances of big companies abusing the fact that sideloading exists on Android. Uh, So Facebook did this. Who's surprised? Uh, (laughs) So if you had the sideloading, this is before when there was one big sideloading checkbox for the entire OS. This is no longer the case, probably because Facebook did this. Uh, So at the time, if you had the thing checked, Facebook could read that preference. 
And what they would do is if you had the side loading preference checked, they would display a dialog into the Facebook app that would say Facebook update available. Click here to update Facebook. And what you would do when you would click that thing is it would not take you to the Play Store to update Facebook. It would take you to the Facebook website and sideload a new Facebook app, which has more privileges than the ones that are allowed through the Play Store, including installing and modifying the state of applications on your device. Oh, yeah, I recall that about that. They basically had the ability to install like Facebook Messenger and Instagram onto your phone whenever they wanted or stuff like that. Uh, they also had the ability to more or less like read every app that was installed on your phone to report back to Facebook. Not that that is impossible otherwise, like see when Twitter tried to do it on iOS. Uh, but like there has been this pattern of big companies trying to abuse this to their benefit, uh, which I don't think is great. Uh, the other thing is like, like I said, like it doesn't matter if your sideloading process has a million dialogues telling people like you will literally die if you press this button. Uh, if too many critical applications for the platform have to go through sideloading or more likely are going through sideloading because the person who makes the app has a vested interest in making you go through sideloading to make more money, uh, then people will just become used to tapping through the dialogues and then you have to escalate the dialogues even more to just make it stand out more. And then you have this sort of rat race of million dialogues uh, to, and it, ultimately it's never going to work. People are just going to sideload once they get used to sideloading. And this is the thought experiment I want people to think of. Let's say iOS basically gets the same sideloading model as Android. I'm not convinced they would adopt exactly the same sideloading model as Android. I think they would do something closer to Gatekeeper. But just think, just go on this ride with me. But wait a sec. Can you maybe explain the new sideloading model of Android? Because you just said that uh, Facebook abused the old one and then Google changed it without saying what they changed. Right. So now... Uh, not only do you have to say I approve uh, applications from unknown sources to be installed on my device, but you also have to individually approve each application that can install things. So if you go to a website in Chrome and you try to install an application via Chrome, you first have to whitelist Chrome as being able to install uh, apps on your device. And then anything that gets installed through Chrome is done. Uh, and presumably, if you install, let's say, Epic Game Store, then you also need to go whitelist Epic Game Store to be able to download Fortnite within Epic Game Store. Mm, if you I follow. see, I see. So let's say, in theory, that iOS gets this sideloading model. A again, I'm pretty sure Apple would do something like Gatekeeper, but that's besides the point. And let's say that overnight, every app that is available on both Mac and iOS that is not currently available in the Mac App Store, decides to withdraw from the iOS App Store and distributes via sideloading. How many big-name crucial apps that people rely on in their day-to-day -day lives would, people, uh, would suddenly require users to sideload? That means Google Chrome. That means Microsoft Teams, which is not available on uh, the App Store. Like Those are just a, two of the ones that I use on my Mac just because I don't have very many apps installed on my Mac. Uh, but like, there are a lot of things on the Mac that are not available through the Mac App Store. And I, for a lot of them, there are no reasons why they are not in the Mac App Store. Like they, they could support uh, sandboxing if they wanted to. But again, like there are a lot of asterisks with Mac App Store sideloading. So I don't want to, it's not a perfect example. But there is a lot of stuff on the Mac that is not in the Mac App Store. And if you sort of suddenly make it so that there is a way for people to avoid the iOS app store and 
sideloading becomes possible, how many people will try to inconvenience users by having them sideload because it gives them some trivial advantage over how much money they make? And the risk is if you normalize sideloading like this, it becomes so much easier to mislead someone who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing into installing something malicious because they didn't read those security dialogues the first time and they're not going to read it the thousandth time. They're just going to click through it. And if it's possible for applications to become distributed, let's say through arbitrary websites, then maybe instead of going to the app store to search for apps first, you're going to search Google for apps first and you have the chance of clicking on a result that is not the legitimate application. And you install a malware version of the application onto your device and there you go. Maybe you go to a porn site and there are pop-ups or whatever that tell you, oh, if you want to watch this video, you have to install Flash Player. I don't know. People are probably going to buy that excuse anyway, even though it's dead. <laughs> and you do it, and then suddenly they have some weird malicious app tracking them in the background. Like There is a bunch of stuff like this that people aren't thinking about because they have these this tendency to pick only the positive parts of sideloading and ignore the downsides of sideloading. People don't like to think that there are malicious entities in the world. I have seen people who don't really believe in securing infrastructure because they don't think that bad people exist in the world. And then it's like, well, your server is hacked and then congratulations. Like I saw that coming from a mile away because you have to assume in many cases when you're doing stuff in technology that people are going to try and abuse the system as much as possible. And a lot of the design choices that are made in iOS are made so that you could not really fuck up an iOS device under any circumstance. Like Apple makes it really fucking hard. And if you open the risk to sideloading, people who don't know what they're doing are going to be able to shoot themselves in the foot. And I mean, like that's the big computers versus consoles debate that people don't really want to admit to is, is there room in the market for computing devices that don't allow their users to shoot themselves in the foot? I think that the world is better if you have these kinds of devices for the people who need them or who want them. Uh, because like, I don't need that kind of protection to be a productive computing user, but I just prefer not having to deal with the bullshit of a complete computer unless I absolutely need to. Uh, and I think that class of device is at risk of disappearing if we go to the extreme of something like allowing sideloading on the device. And that's kind of why I'm so passionate about this thing. And it drives me crazy to be seeing all of these bad takes everywhere is that I don't think people are taking everything into consideration or they're only taking into consideration the tech savvy users of the thing. Because a lot of us do have desktop computers and we do know what we're doing and we assume that everyone else does, but they don't. I have, I know people, I have hung out with people who use Android phones, who have installed apps, sideloaded apps that are overlays that whatever they touch on the screen and whatever they do on the screen is being logged by that application. And there is a big Google security dialogue that pops up over the thing that says, you are currently running an application that is an overlay and it can see all of your touches and all of that. And they don't know what it means. So they tap OK and they continue to run their phone with that app running all the time. And they don't know what it means until I show up and tell them, oh yeah, you know that application that you're running is stealing all of your data probably? You should probably not have that app installed on your phone. There is a room for this class of device, and that is what I'm worried about, is I want there to be devices that if there is someone who is not tech literate, I can put them in front of this device and they can get their shit done without needing to constantly worry that they're going to fuck it up. Am I a bad person for thinking that? 
And yeah, there are going to be trade-offs, but guess what? If you want another device that is a computer that can do all of the stuff, Apple makes the Mac. That's the open computing processor that they make. So before I declare that you're a bad person, because I'll like <laughs> to do that, uh, I just want to kind of guide you through... I've, do you have any personal expenses with... I'm going to tread lightly there, but again, we do use that. So uh, do you have any experience with quote-unquote siloing apps with an enterprise server? Meaning, I don't mean really siloing apps, but just like installing app via an enterprise search. I used old test flight before Apple bought them. That is maybe the closest thing. That's ad hoc certificate. But as right. far as I know, it's basically the same thing. Kinda. Because with the enterprise search, you don't have a device limit, which is... That's of, true. Right, right. But And also throughout the years, it also kind of got a bit more secure. But the gist of it is, uh, like any somewhat big enterprises these days, uh, we've built an internal app store for our internal apps. And again, that's only for employees, secured for employees and all that fun stuff. But the gist of it is when you install it, um, you can always trigger uh, uh, trigger iOS to install sideloaded apps using those enterprise certificates. And that's why Apple is mad at Facebook about the uh, the Onovia, I forgot the name of it. Onavo. Onavo uh, VPN, all that fun stuff. But the gist of it, and I think it's kind of a bit of gatekeeper on steroids, is that it allows you to install the app. The app is installed, you click on it, and it tells this developer is on trust. And then the only button is OK. And then this mis- <laughs> happens, and then if you press again, it says the same thing. I forgot, it's been a while because... One of the tricks we have is always to leave one app installed uh, from our developer search, so you never see this prompt. But I forgot if it's in the alert, it's telling you where to go. Because you need to know where, if I recall correctly, you need to know where to go. So you need to go in settings, general, in, in the profiles, in, I forgot the name, it's called uh, like management, like inter- app management, something, something. Uh, and you do have a section called Enterprise Apps. And it says here, for this example, my company's name. Uh, do you want to trust them? And I do know that there's a network call, making sure that it's, like I guess, properly signed. And that when you say trust, now you can a start the app. And also in the same screen, when you go back there, you can, for sure right now, only have one app. But I think you do have a big red button that says, delete all apps. So you can delete them. And I feel that possibly we could see that. Of course, all, the second you have a quote-unquote backdoor, and I put it in big quotes to say a way to enable like art mode, people will dumbly go enable art uh, mode and then just like forget about it and do stupid shit. But I do feel that if you mix... What we have as gatekeeper notification on the Mac, plus what we have as enterprise search and like validating the app, the apps from a certain developer. Because let's say if we take the example that it would you would install the Epic Store, it would say, "Hey, do you want to trust the apps installed by Epic?" You say yes. So of course, if you install Fortnite through their Epic Store on on Image and the iOS, it would auto install because we assume they would put it under the same dev account, right? Yeah. If they would not, it would do the same dance. So if you want to build your own app store, every time you install an app, it would ask you, do you want to trust this developer? 
do you want to trust this developer? But I guess in this case, like the downside would be Epic Game Store is, well, I mean, currently on mobile, they only have their own games, but they're clearly interested in selling other people's games as well. Right. So either they would have to sign everybody's everybody's game slash app under their own account or they would have to just live with this kind of like hybrid world I'm creating just for the sake of our discussion in this podcast which is I don't see Epic going for that and that's my point and it's like you have a door now it's maybe not the nicest door but you cannot go bitch and moan that you have a door right and that's again going back to my non-legal understanding of their complaint right it's literally you have a door but so there's a store you want all the benefits of the store but you don't want to pay for it there's a way for you to create a store you want don't want to spend the money nor the energy to create the store and then you just want a store and not pay for it like tough luck like that to me is I, if I quote what uh, Bezos was saying into the internet trust like uh, earrings, like <laughs> this is business. Do you want me to explain it to you? Like this to me, like you can say that. Yeah. If Apple were to 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 do the same thing, I think they will, again. I'm not a lawyer, but public perception speaking, especially for nerds, I think they would have a stronger case because they'd be like, you want to build your own path. Of course, yes, we might. Then they'll maybe start saying, oh, we won't be able to have automatic update and stuff like that. Fair. Then you can have a negotiation with them and then they might decide, no, because of that's not secure. But we don't block you to have your third-party payment processor. We don't block you to install any apps you want using all the internal APIs because we don't don't check, right? Mm -hmm. But that's where right now I feel the main distinction between Apple and Google. And that's where I see those two cases go separate ways. I wouldn't be surprised that let's say if they're able to convince Apple to lower their fees that as Apple doesn't want to admit, like their 30% fees came out of thin air from their own like guesswork. I would say like they're like in 2007, like, okay, we need to invent a store. What percentage we should charge? 30% sounds good. So let's start... (coughs) Let's charge 30% and then everybody will do the same, which is exactly what happened. So I wouldn't be surprised if then, if one of them, especially the stronger ones, is forced to lower it, everybody will follow. That's step one. If they then go with side loading, maybe try to make it a bit more secure, knowing that the second you side load, it's never to be fully 100% secure. But I do think that if we go to, let's say, let's assume that the Google model right now is like 60 to 70% quote-unquote secure if we can put a number to security let's put it this way maybe if they try to move this number to 75 80 it is a better improvement but it will never be 100 percent if you allow other apps to do their own shit the same way you can like literally break your mac because you installed an app right that won't change until they force you to never install apps that they don't try to control and with that thing i strongly feel that's where people might still be open but for the case of epic it seems that every time they get what they want they always want more and that right now currently is what rubs me the wrong way is even if apple gives them everything they're asking right now then they'll do what they did with google and bitch like oh side loading is not good enough because you you said that our apps are malware it's like 
we're not saying your app is malware. We're just saying that possibly your app that you're installing right now might be malware. You might be okay, Epic Game. But that's your job to create this trust relationship with your customers, no longer Google. And it seems that right now, Apple is not willing to do that for, I would say not obvious reasons, but I think for obvious reasons. But I strongly believe that they might be forced to kind of resign control on this. Uh, the the other point to bring up is if iOS decides to go with the gatekeeper style model, uh, what's going on with uh, Epic and Fortnite right now is the demonstration why no notarization is imperfect as a system, because the fact that Fortnite's developer account is going to be terminated tomorrow means that they won't be able to notarize apps for the Mac, which is like the mm-hmm. entire point of being able to distribute apps outside of the app store is that you're distributing apps outside of the app store and not forced to put up with the terms of the app store. But now violating the terms of the app store disables your access to notarization, which means you can't distribute your apps. Well, not you can distribute your apps outside of the app store, but like there's going to be even more security dialogues, uh, which is not what Epic wants. Right. And, in theory, in that world, it incentivizes you to never be on the app store, to never risk that, and always sideload. So that your dev account is only for sideloading, if you see what I mean. Yeah, which is kind of weird. I, I'm not a fan of that uh, thing, but I, I'm generally not a fan of notarization in general. Uh, but yeah, that's that's another discussion. And uh, yes and no, and then maybe uh, we can go back to a bit uh, on your kind of like outline. But that's where I feel that while notarization will never be perfect, that currently, and I would like to see what people think about that. Like, is there other ways where Apple can still keep some of their control while allowing user to do to to be more freely open to choices, if you see what I mean here. Well, I mean, the two things they need to do to fix notarization in my book is not require the $100 fee for the developer account Mm. and completely decouple it from whatever happens on the app store. Like, if you do those two things, I have no problem with notarization. Like, I'm not... That's I'm not a fair opposed point. to the process. I'm opposed to the implementation details. That's a, that's I, I I think you're right. But that those are two fair points, two fair criticism right now of notarization. And yeah, if then it means that you can also do side loading of iOS apps. Yeah, could be a solution. Fine by me. All right, so that's pretty much what I had to say about uh, all of these paths for resolution. Uh, I think Apple should loosen their grip on the app store. And I definitely think they should do it themselves because a government before a government steps in and overcorrects, uh, because there is definitely a risk of that. And I have heard like people even proposing like, Oh, the government should try and split their hardware and software businesses. And that is like death to me. So please don't do that. <laughs> please uh, loosen your grip on the app store before it gets that carried away. Uh, I think that a lot of the discourse around this issue has been frustrating. And there has been a lot of like, to some degree partisanship from the people who are like honestly game developers are like fully on epic side for the most part and there is a certain class of apple fans which is completely on apple's side and then there's the people who are just like 
iOS devices are computers. They should be exactly like the Mac in every single way. And like, I disagree with that so much. Uh, I think that one of the reasons iOS is so accessible to people as a platform is because it tries to be a complete computing appliance. And one of those pillars that makes it a computing appliance is the reduction of friction and the added trust in third-party software that centralized software distribution brings. And I think that we should try to preserve that in any way possible while also addressing a lot of the issues that there are surrounding app store distribution right now um yeah pretty much it good so i'm sure yannick will have a lot of links uh, for the show notes so you will be able to find those said links at limitlesspossibility.net slash 143 so 143 if you want to go to our back catalog of episodes you can find it at limitlesspossibility.net if you want to follow the latest news about the show and any related news uh, about the show itself, you can find it on Twitter at, at Limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at Lucanosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at... Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Hmm. Ça passe bien, Michael? C'est quoi qu'un Federico? Ben, je, je dirais que c'est le seul point que j'ai pas eu le temps d'aborder dans l'épisode, mais là que je pense, puis c'est de dire comme, je pense que la, le, la partie où que ça fall down, l'argument de dire que c'est des consoles, c'est c'est une console, c'est pas autant general purpose que mais, ton iPhone, ton iPad. Ouais. <rire>